This is Matt Raymond at the Library of Congress. Each year, thousands of book lovers of all ages visit the nation's capital to celebrate the joys of reading and lifelong literacy at the National Book Festival, sponsored by the Library of Congress and hosted by First Lady Laura Bush. Now in its seventh year, this free event, held on the National Mall Saturday, September 29th, will spark readers' passion for learning as they interact with the nation's best-selling authors, illustrators, and poets. Even those not attending in person can access the event online. Pre-recorded interviews, like the one you're listening to right now, with well-known authors will be available through the Book Festival website in podcast format. You can visit that at www.loc.gov slash bookfest. Now have the honor of talking with Dr. Sanjay Gupta, the Associate Chief of Neurosurgery at Grady Memorial Hospital and Assistant Professor at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta. However, you may be more familiar with Dr. Gupta through his Emmy Award-winning work as Chief Medical Correspondent for CNN. Dr. Gupta travels the globe covering important health news. He hosts the program House Call with Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and he regularly contributes to American Morning. In addition to his Time magazine column, Dr. Gupta recently published his first book, Chasing Life, New Discoveries in the Search for Immortality to Help You Age Less Today. In it, he shares practical steps we can take right now to improve our health and longevity, and he explores new medical discoveries that may help us age better and live longer. Welcome, Dr. Gupta, and thank you for taking time to talk with us. Thanks so much. It's a real honor to be here. Before we get into your book and, and some of uh, the messages of your book, I wanted to ask you about uh, a little bit about your career trajectory, actually. Uh, going from medicine to journalism might seem to most people a bit of a leap. What motivated you to expand into uh, the field of reporting? Well, yeah, it's funny. You know, I always tell people that I sort of went from the microscope to the telescope. I, uh, you know, literally as a neurosurgeon were opting a lot of time operating under the microscope, and as a journalist, you know, I get to travel the whole world, the world through a telescope. Um, I, I, you know, it's funny. I don't see it as as disparate as a lot of people do see it. I, I uh, think of being a doctor as a chance to educate, inform, and help patients. Um, and I think as a journalist, especially a health journalist, a lot of what I end up doing is bringing a certain level of medical expertise to to millions of viewers. So it's a it's a much broader brushstroke, and I've always been interested in sort of the public health aspects of what it is that we do. So even simpler messages that can be given to lots of people was something that was always very interesting to me. Um, I first got interested in it when I, I, I worked at the White House. I was a White House fellow, and I ended up working in the First Lady's office, and I wrote a lot of speeches and, and, and crafted a lot of healthcare messages, and I really got interested in, in, in the idea that you could, you know, through the words of the First Lady or the President, impact so many people. And so media, in some ways, was a, was a natural extension of that. Are there any people who you consider role models, either in your work as a doctor and or a journalist? Who would those be, if, if there are any? Well, you know, there's certainly uh, people who have really nurtured my career. And, uh, you know, my, my chairman uh, of neurosurgery, for example, a man by the name of Buzz Hoff, great name for a neurosurgeon, uh, was one of these people who not only uh, taught me how to be uh, a neurosurgeon, and I think you know he, he taught us how to be some of the best neurosurgeons in the country, but he also was someone who really understood the value of citizen scholarship, understood the value of 
the idea that doctors used to be the ultimate Renaissance citizens, uh, concerned not only about health issues, uh, which they are greatly concerned about, but also uh, current events, politics, the arts, uh, to just be well-read, well-informed people, because the, there's a real value in citizen scholarship. So he's somebody who I really think of as a mentor. You, you probably had never heard of him, but you know, the other people that I really uh, look to are, are my own parents. Uh, mainly, you know, my, I'm, I'm the child of two immigrants who, who were brought up uh, under circumstances where they were often told that they couldn't do things that they wanted to do. They couldn't leave their small villages halfway around the world and come to the United States and pursue their dreams, and, and they did it anyways. They, they sort of flew in the face of a lot of their conventional wisdom and accomplished something, and, and I think that that always teaches me that, you know what, you can push yourself even harder. You can be both a neurosurgeon and a journalist if you really want to do it, even though no one's ever done it before. Do it. And uh, so th th those are some of the people who've really influenced me. Now, speaking of inspiration, we like to think that the National Book Festival inspires people, getting getting them sort of in a nexus with uh, authors that uh, they're fans of. Why do you think it's important to participate in the book festival? I think that there, there's a real opportunity here uh, to, to, you know, learn about things that maybe you, you don't have a chance to think about on a daily basis. Uh, I love going to festivals as, as much in the same way that I allow myself to, to go to bookstores and libraries and stuff just to sort of be surprised, uh, look at uh, both genres and, and specific books that I hadn't thought of before. And, uh, you know, you, you find inspiration in, in, in places that maybe you didn't expect. So, um, I think that going to the festival is important, but coming to the festival with a really open mind, coming to the festival with a real sort of thirst, a uh, real curiosity, uh, makes it a, an extremely worthwhile thing. And, and you use the right word. I think it is inspiring, uh, whether or not it makes you want to go out and write your own book or whether it makes you want to impact your world in some way or whether it just you know, enlightens you in some way. Whatever it might be, uh, there's also always virtue in, in participating in this. What can your readers and viewers expect to hear from you at the book festival? I think that, you know, when I, when I participated in festivals before, a lot of the readers are sort of, obviously you can read the book, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the book. I think they're very interested in the process, too, the sort of nuts to bolts. First of all, why? Why write a book like this? Second of all, how do you go about doing it? How do you organize your thoughts? Is nonfiction harder to write than fiction? Uh, how do you source things? How do you organize it? So I talk a lot about that. Um, my book uh, and my background is obviously health, and uh, this this book w sort of came about as a, a a real curiosity about this idea of immortality and how we get there. Not necessarily living forever, but m living longer and more functional than ever before. And and what is it about personal responsibility in terms of our own health that makes it so important? Um, we, we live in an age now where our health barometers and parameters are changing so rapidly. How do we control a lot of these things on our own? And I, and I think that's a lot, a lot of what I'm going to talk about. Let's talk a little bit more about the book, Chasing Life, New Discoveries in the Search for Immortality to Help You Age Less Today. You've used the term health, health span. What, what does that mean? What do you refer to with that? <laughs> Well, what I'm talking about is this, what I think is an antiquated notion that we sort of measure age in years. Uh, most doctors don't actually measure age in years. Sure, we know how old somebody is. What's more important to us is how, what their physiological age is. I know 60-year-olds who have the physiological age of a 40-year-old and vice versa. 
The question is, how, what is your health span going to be? How long are you going to live in a healthy sort of way? I tell a lot of my patients and a lot of my viewers that, that we would prefer probably to live our lives like an incandescent light bulb, burn completely brightly our entire lives, and then suddenly go out. No mm -hmm. flickering at the end. Mm -hmm. Lots of healthy life, and then suddenly done. Instead, we expect, fully expect, that we're going to live part of our lives in nursing homes and in hospitals, uh, less functional than we would like, of both mind and body. Uh, how, do we, how do we not let that happen to us? We, what we already know, we can prevent that from happening. Let's get there as a society. What, what are some of the most important things that we can do to improve our health spans? Well, you know, the, the, uh, obviously I wrote an entire book about it, so there's, there's tons of things <laughs> that you can do. But, you know, I, I think a lot of it does have to do with, uh, with you know, as, as much as we talk about the prof of science of stem cells and nanotechnology and, and what, uh, you know, the pharmaceutical industry has to offer, I think that has to be a part of the discussion. There are a lot of things we can do as individuals from, you know, really understanding the physiology of exercise, for example. Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. We become a very aerobic-centered society, which I think is very important. And, and, and unfortunately, we've gotten away uh, a lot, at least a lot of people as they get older, they get away from resistance training. Um, through, through some very careful analysis, can explain how resistance training can not only make you live longer, but improve the function of your life. Doing some upper body training for a few minutes a day can ward off osteoporosis, make you stand up straighter, both men and women. can ward off pneumonia, which is a big killer later in life. And it can also increase your muscle mass to the point where you rev up what's called your basal metabolic rate, so you burn more calories at rest, uh, allowing you to sort of maintain weight, which is uh, obviously a huge consideration with regards to chronic disease as well. Uh, when it comes to diet, I don't advocate taking supplements for the most part. I'm very clear in the book about a couple things that I do take, which are baby aspirin and fish oil. But other than that, I don't advocate taking supplements, not because the idea of taking antioxidants and things like that are bad for you. They're not. But the idea that you can actually take the good stuff, if you will, out of pills and put it in, uh, out of food and put it into pill form mm -hmm. just doesn't seem to translate. You've got to eat right because you're not going to get all these micronutrients and stuff otherwise. So a simple rule of thumb, try and eat seven different colored foods a day. Uh, if you do that, you're probably going to be getting uh, all the good stuff, quote-unquote, that you need. One, one of the most important things, I think, and, and I think maybe one of the least intuitive, is, is something wonderful that I learned from the Japanese, uh, and it's called ikigai which somewhat translated means sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think we lack uh, often and, and unfortunately gets worse as we get older is a real sense of purpose about our lives. Um, why do we live? Why do we get up every morning and do what we do? What drives us? What inspires us? And what, is, what would our life be like if we didn't have those inspirations? Uh, in, in, in the United States and in a lot of Western societies, as you get older, you lose your ikigai. In Japan, that doesn't happen. An older person is revered, respected, and welcomed into mm. younger societies, and they really believe it's part of the reason that Japan has one of the longest lifespans and health spans of anywhere on the planet. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned earlier a little bit about exercise, and your book has some really amazing anecdotes, actually, including one about a man who took up sprinting into his yeah. 80s. D does this really tell us that it really is never too old or too late to become physically active? 
I think it does. Uh, you know, James Hammond, and I and I love using the example of James Hammond because I think just everybody, just about everybody can relate to him in some way. He never exercised a day in his life. I mean, he was a businessman. He traveled around, and he looked like a businessman who never exercised. And then suddenly he decided to take it up in a in a very serious way. And we were talking about the fact that when he was 60, he probably had the biological and physiological age of someone who was 80. And by the time he was 80, he may have actually had the physiological age of someone who was 50, just because he took up intense exercise. He, he found something, he found a goal, and he pushed himself harder and harder and harder every single day. And uh, it, is, it is never too late. And, and you won't get a chance to meet James Hammond, but I, I wrote about him in this book. He, he, his entire life has been transformed by sort of incorporating this one intense exercise into his life. He has purpose. He has health. He's happier. Uh, everything about his life is healthier than it was before. And it just goes to show you, as you said, Matt, it's, it's never too late, too late to start. Uh, if, if someone is just starting an exercise program, what do you think they should keep in mind? What are, what are some of the, the things maybe that really can motivate someone to stay physically active for their lifetime? There's a couple of things that I find work really well. One is to to set some realistic goals. Uh, don't don't kill yourself. You don't you're not going to to erase years and years of of non-exercise in, in a few days, a few weeks, or even a few months. So be realistic in terms of what you can do, and but then do that. Uh, you set the goals yourself. But also try and surprise your body every day. Some people will say, well, I'm just going to run two miles every day, and after a while, it's just drudgery. It's a task. Uh, more than anything else, and, and no one really particularly enjoys that. So surprise yourself with different sorts of exercise. Uh, add some of the resistance training, jump rope, uh, skip, do something that's different on any given day. But I think the most important thing, and I think that this is a thing where a lot of people um, let it slip, is that you've got to recognize that even though you feel well now and that you're healthy now, that unless you sort of maintain something, uh, a lot of that can slip away on you. So as important it is for you to meet with your editor, as important it is to meet with your boss or supervisor, anybody, you got to get some exercise in just about every day, at least five days a week. Don't let exercise be the first thing to fall off the map. It happens to too many uh, people all over the world. Don't, don't, don't be one of those people. Physical health, obviously very important, but a lot of patients and doctors alike really uh, disregard how our emotional well-being can also affect our, affect our physical state. Talk a little bit about the connection between the two. Well, you know, if, if your emotional well-being overall is not something that you focus on or practice, it's going to be very hard for anything else to sort of fall into place. Uh, you know, people will say, well, I'm... I'm sort of in a funk, or my, my, my mind just wasn't into it, and, and therefore I, I, you know, couldn't exercise the way I wanted to, or I couldn't take care of myself, and, you know, forget exercise. Sometimes if you're uh, emotionally not present or, or having trouble, you don't even get preventive medicine, you don't go see the doctor, you don't eat right, you don't do anything that's really meant to take care of yourself. So uh, there, there's a huge connection and, and, and a detrimental one for the most part. A lack of emotional well-being often leads to lack of physical well-being. Um, you know, I'm a neurosurgeon. I'm someone who's who's been schooled in the sciences for my entire life. Uh, I like the scientific method. I like proof. I like data. But there's some things that I learned in this process of writing this book that sort of surprised me, and a lot of them had to do with emotional well-being. The idea of meditation every day for even a few minutes 
And uh, a couple of people I interviewed for the book, Deepak Chopra was one of them. Uh, he gave you a great quote. He says, if you, don't, if you can't find 15 minutes to meditate every day, that probably means you need a half an hour. <laughs> and I, it's, it's a good point that he makes. And the point is that, you know, we all need to be able to find time to take care of our, our spirit and our emotional well-being. And, again, this is a neurosurgeon saying this. I like to meditate now every day. I do it, and I spend a few minutes doing it at different times throughout the day where I'll just basically really visualize my breath going in through my senses, down around my lungs and out my mouth, and I'll whisper a word that I like as I'm exhaling, and the word for me is gentle. So I'll do this 10, 15, 20 times, and it's amazing what happens. First of all, I feel better, mm-hmm. but now we know scientifically your heart rate is undulated, your blood pressure comes down, you have less cortisol, which is a stress hormone being released. Mm-hmm. There's a real connection between emotional well-being and physical well-being. Hmm. Well, as a doctor and a journalist alike, you are probably better positioned than almost anybody to know about what's what's coming up. What's the latest information in terms of medicine and science? What are some of the discoveries and research maybe on the horizon that you think are going to prolong and improve our lives? Well, there's a lot of excitement in, in, in the world of, in the future of medicine. Um, I, I'm particularly interested in, for example, some of the neurodegenerative problems that plague us now as a society. Alzheimer's, for example, is something that uh, I think about a lot. I worry about uh, some of my relatives who may develop as I worry about myself. And I do think that, uh, I do think in our lifetime we're going to see something similar to an Alzheimer's vaccine something that you can take to prevent Alzheimer's from developing. We're not there yet, but I think it's something we might actually see one day. I also think that, uh, you know, with regard to stem cells, something I write about extensively in the book, that there is so much fertile ground here with regard to uh, trying to make spinal cords that are injured less injured, trying to treat uh, neurodegenerative problems such as, such as Parkinson's disease. Uh, the very idea that, uh, that stem cells may have a rejuvenative effect that not only could they slow down aging, some people, as these scientists in Russia believe, uh, they think it can actually reverse aging, that they can make us younger in some way, uh, which, is, which is pretty fascinating. There's an idea of nanotechnology, which I write a lot about in the book as well, this idea that you could actually have these super cells that circulate through your body, that every time they see something abnormal, too much cholesterol here, uh, tumor cell here that might divide, eliminate those things so that we can live more functional lives. Uh, Matt, I've used the term live more functional lives constantly as opposed to saying immortality because living a more functional life is a sort of practical immortality. If we live more functional lives, higher lifespan, we'd actually live a longer life. Mm-hmm. If I could just turn to current events for a moment, you received a lot of attention lately, whether it was welcome or not. When Michael Moore criticized you about your coverage of his recent documentary, Sicko, what, what is your take on that, and how valid do you think is his film's comparison of the American healthcare system to, uh, to other countries? Um, well, let me, let me say, first of all, I think that we, we, live in a, we live in a society where you know, people like to say you're either red or blue, you're either black or white, you're either for it or you're against it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, I think as a society, unfortunately, we take too many shortcuts, maybe it's just laziness or, or lack of time to really understand people's positions on things. Um, I've known Michael for a long time. Uh, you know, I, I think that the, the, 
the idea that uh, you know our healthcare system is is broken, the idea that the very measure of our society is in how we take care of people who cannot take care of themselves, uh, and we don't do a very good job of it, is is something that I think we share in terms of our belief in that. And that's why I work at the White House. I work on a lot of these issues mm-hmm. that Michael uh, put in his movie. I work on these. I've been working on these issues for over a decade. I think the the issue that I have, and I think I think some some you know I, obviously there's a lot of people who who think about this a lot, um, is that if you're gonna if you're going to try and implement some sort of national healthcare system, to simply look at the positive attributes of other countries without completely presenting all the facts and some of the shortcomings, I think is uh, is detrimental. Uh, I think it blackens the eyes of people who are actually trying to get something done about healthcare. Uh, to, to, to sort of skim over or completely uh, neglect or, or to misconstrue, for example, waiting times or quality of health care in other countries, to somehow say that uh, the United States system would be better served by a system like Cuba without taking a, a close look at the system. Michael knows that the hospital that he examined in Cuba, for example, is, is one of literally 10,000 hospitals that is like that. Mm-hmm. And he knew it at the time. He knows it now, and he, he still sort of presents that as, as sort of the way that all of Cuba is. And, you know, I, I think that luckily most people sort of understand that that's, that's not the case. But they also understand that what Michael did in that movie is an important message, and that is that our healthcare system really does need some, need some overhauling. I, I, would, I would not have had an issue at all with this movie if Michael – you know, presented it as a film, uh, a, a you know, a, a movie like any other, but he calls it a documentary. Uh, I think that documentarians have an obligation to present everything that they know about an issue, uh, not to simply pick numbers from various years and various studies to somehow support or, or negate an argument, uh, and to, to, to make sure that they're really presenting um, all sides of, of, of what, you know, might or might not be present. And, um, I, I don't know. It, you know, like I said, I was surprised it got so much attention. My only regret is that we spent more time talking about personalities of Michael Moore and myself than we did about what's a, a really important issue, which is healthcare in this country. I'm sure a lot of it is a factor of the internet culture we live in, with YouTube and blogs kind of keeping things alive far, far longer than maybe they would have otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, there's a real role for that. I think the blogosphere and the Internet have uh, lent a voice to people who, who did not have voices before, and I think that's so critically important. Um, you know, the, the uh, I think, you know, there's, there's a real uh, – healthcare is really important to people, and it should be, and I think it always has been. But for some reason, and I, and I mentioned this when I talked to Michael, uh, and I'm not sure why, people don't always vote their conscience when it comes to healthcare. They don't, they, you know, when it comes to the big elections and the big opportunities to do something, you know, really big with health care, um, people seem to gloss over it at that time. And I hope that uh, this upcoming election and this upcoming discussions about it are, are different. I hope people really do think about it and understand where, where we need to go as a society with this. Well, that's probably a good note to end on. But I, before I let you go, I want to ask, what is next for Dr. Sanjay Gupta? Well, you know, I really enjoy where I am right now in life. I get to I get to be a doctor. I get to take care of patients every day, and uh, I think it's one of the most fulfilling things that uh, that I can do. I also get to inform you know millions of people through my work on CNN, and you know it's it's challenging work. I mean, and one thing about my life is that it's not glamorous. I mean, I wake up about four four forty five in the morning every day, and I'm often not getting home till. Eight nine o'clock at night, and that's mm. what it takes to basically hold down a job as a doctor and as a journalist and Time magazine writer, 
and uh, I'm working on another book. I just signed a deal to follow up Chasing Life. Hmm. It's a book that's tentatively called Cheating Death. There's a little bit of a theme going here. <laughs> We're sort of working at the other end of the, the life spectrum and looking at how people can really, uh, near the end of their years, cheat death, uh, you know, get the most out of those, those final years of life and, 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 and how doctors and the healthcare system can, can best enhance that for people. Well, the current book is Chasing Life, New Discoveries in the Search for Immortality to Help You Age Less Today. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, we very much appreciate uh, your time today. Anytime, Matt. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. Okay, and we are excited to hear more from you at the National Book Festival. That will be Saturday, September 29th on the National Mall from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. The event is free and open to the public, and if you want more details and a list of participating authors, you can visit www.loc.gov bookfest. From the Library of Congress, I'm Matt Raymond. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>